appreciate Brother Tim's emphasis on the importance of the scriptures this morning. In addition to things that he said, there's two places I think really nail it down. And one of them is when the Sadducees came to the Lord with a question on the resurrection, who they did not believe in the resurrection. But the Lord told them, he said, you do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And then we look in Acts 17, 11, it says, the brethren at Berea were more noble than those at Thessalonica, because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These were the apostles teaching them, but the Bereans were not going to take the apostles' word for it unless they could search the scriptures and verify what they were saying was correct. That should always be your attitude and my attitude for the things that we believe and how we conduct our lives and the scriptures are the things that's going to give us that information. This morning I'd like to go back to the book of Esther. Uh, Last week we spoke to you from this wonderful book uh, contained over here in the Old Testament right out the book of Nehemiah. Uh, The book of Esther is 10 chapters long. Uh, The book of Esther represents a period of Israel's history that they have not forgotten. And uh, to remember this, or to this uh, event that took place in their lives, or this history, uh, they practice uh, what's called the Feast of Purim. The word Purim is a uh, plurality of the word pure. The word pure was the Babylonian name for it, and Purim is the Jewish or Hebrew name for it, and it's a plurality of it. And so the Jews uh, remember this event at a time when they call the Feast of Purim. Now, the Feast of Purim was not ordained of God for the Jews to observe. This is something they did on their own. Uh, But I think it's quite commendable that they would want to retain this part of their history when God brought a great deliverance to them in His providence. Now, if you didn't hear last week's message, I'd encourage you to go online and get it and to hear it, uh, to go in with what we'd like to say to you today. Now, we're not going to go back and rehearse or repeat what we said last week, but we do need to go back just a a little bit. And we find in the book of Esther, you have four main characters. You have the king, you have Haman, you have Mordecai, or Mordecai, however you want to say it, and you uh, also have Esther. Now, the Lord blessed Esther and Mordecai to bring about a great deliverance on behalf of the nation of Israel. Uh, Haman was a very wicked man. As I stated last Sunday, uh, you can go to Proverbs 6, 16, and 17, or 6, 6, and 7, and you'll find there's seven things that the Lord hates, and I believe you can find all seven of these in the life of Haman. Haman hating the Jews. Haman uh, was able to get a decree written where on the 13th day of the month Adar, which was the 12th month at that time, the people in the kingdom of Persia would have the legal right to slay all the Jews in the kingdom. This was uh, uh, what Haman wanted to do. He he disliked the Jews so much, hated them, that he wanted to cause all them to be killed and to perish. And he had now the king sign this decree, or at least he gave Haman his ring to sign the decree, and the decree could not be reversed. Now, we know that Haman winds up being hung on the gallows. Haman's dead, but his decree is still in effect. That's the thing about it. And remember this, 
after people die, oftentimes the things that they say and the things that they do in life will have an impact in the lives of other people for years to come. And this can be positive or this can be negative. In the book of Revelation, we are told, uh, the writer tells us, blessed are those who die in the Lord, for their works do follow after them. Now, there's people who I know who've gone on to be with the Lord years ago, but things they said and things they did still have an impact on my life today. And that's the kind of life we want to live, right? Where you have a positive impact on the life of somebody else. And so, uh, re just remember that. Uh, on the other hand, there are those who do evil things and wicked things, and even though they're dead, the things that they put into practice will have consequences on people for years and years to come. Now, Haman is dead, but the decree is still in effect. It didn't do away with the decree. The decree didn't go away just because Haman uh, was slain and hung on the gallows that was prepared for Mordecai. Uh, in this lesson here, I want to, in the beginning... Uh, show how this fulfills the scriptures from the standpoint of sowing and reaping. You look in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26 and verse 27, and the wise man Solomon says, Whosoever diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whosoever shall roll a stone, it shall return upon him. Now that's the same thing that Paul says over here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, Be not deceived, God shall not be mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He says, if he soweth to the uh, flesh, he shall reap corruption. But if he soweth to the spirit, he shall reap life everlasting. Now Haman sowed to the flesh. Haman was uh, a man with a big ego. He was a little man, by the way. You can tell how little or big a man is by the things that bother him. A person that's bothered by just little things, he's a little man. Now, we all should be bothered by some things, but it ought to take some big things to really bother us, you see. Well, Haman had been advanced. He had been promoted by the king. And yet, when he walked by the gate, we find where all those at the gate would bow down to him, except for one man that was Mordecai, a Jew. And this really bothered him greatly. Bothered him greatly. Haman had evil designs within himself to destroy the Jewish people. We find that Haman winds up being hung on gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And if you remember the meeting that brought all this about, it's when the king could not sleep at night. And the king asked for the chronicles. And there were many chronicles. This was the records, you know, of uh, all the legal work and legal dealings in the history of the Persians. And it just so happened that the chronicles was selected that where it was recorded where Mordecai had revealed that there were two men who had, was conspiring to slay the king. And it was found out, and they wound up being slain themselves. But nothing was ever done for him. So he asked a question. He says, was anything done for him? And they said, no, nothing, O king. So the king is pondering how he's going to reward Mordecai, okay? And while he's pondering how he's going to reward Mordecai, Haman comes on the scene to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai. They both have Mordecai on their minds. Haman wants him hung, and the king wants him honored. But Haman doesn't know that. 
And Haman just assumes that when the king says unto him, what do you think we should do to honor the man that the king so should like to honor? Haman assumed. And you know what the word assume means, I'm sure, right? You've heard what? When you just assume things, when you come in the middle of a conversation, you don't know the context of it. It's always dangerous to get involved in. I can assure you that. Haman just assumes he's talking about me. And so he tells the king, I'd put the king's crown on his head, I'd put the king's apparel around him, and I'd put him on the king's horse and have somebody to lead the horse down the streets, proclaiming honor upon him. And the king likes that. At this time, Haman still does not know it's Mordecai. He thinks it's him. Now, sometimes I say Mordecai, sometimes I say Mordecai. I'm talking about the same man, okay? Last week, somebody said, well, I've always heard it, Mordecai. Well, I put it on the, I listened to it on the Bible being read, and sure enough, it's, they pronounce it Mordecai. But if you look at how it's spelled, I still say I'm right, Mordecai. But either way, we're talking about the same man, okay? Talking about the same man. And so, Mordecai is going to be honored, but Haman still thinks it's him until the king reveals who it is. Now he, after this humiliating experience, he goes back home. And if you remember the first time he went home, after being invited to a banquet of the queen, he went back home joyful. He was on cloud nine. And he went back and got his wife and his friends, and he told them about the glory of his riches, the multitude of his children, and his advancement and promotion. That was his message. Now that just uh, goes to show you uh, what pride this man had. But this time he's going to go back to his family and his friends. It's a different story. He goes back to his wife and friends and he tells them what just took place. And his wife who had recommended those gallows be built for Mordecai, I said, if you begin to fall now before this man as a Jew, she's really saying you have no hope left. <laughs> what a contrast between these two meetings here that he had with his wife and his friends. He goes back to the second meeting. That's when it's revealed the queen has the courage now to tell the king who it is that has planned destruction of her people. He wants to know who it is. She says, this wicked Haman, and points him out. And they suggest to the king that there's a gallows being built for Mordecai, who he's now honored, and says, we can hang him. And he says, go and hang the man. And by the way, the gallows was 50 cubits high, which means it was 75 foot high. He built a gallows 75 foot high to hang a man that was a short man. And why was that? He wanted everybody to see it. He wanted to be sure nobody missed it. Well, he winds up on those gallows himself. Now, let's go to chapter 8. Haman is dead. His decree is still in effect. Hadn't changed. His decree is on the 13th day of the month Adar, the 12th month, it's going to be legal to kill every Jew that's in the kingdom. They have the right, they have the authority to do it, and there was a lot of hatred for them. That's still in effect. We find where Esther now comes before the king, and he holds out the golden scepter the second time. You remember the first time how hesitant she was? Remember how she said that if you're not called for by the king and you approach him without being called, you run the risk of your life being taken from you. But finally, after she asked the people, Mordecai and all the others, to fast and to pray for three days and three nights, she said, I will go. If I perish, I perish. And she went. But the king held out the golden scepter. 
This time she makes no such request. I believe she's been strengthened by her prior experience. She makes no such request this time. She comes before the king boldly. And this reminds me of Hebrews 4 and 16. Well, above that, Paul says, seeing we have a high priest which has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, he says, who uh, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched the feelings of our infirmities, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us what? Come boldly. That means with confidence. 1 John 5 and 14, the apostle John says, having this confidence in him, if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know if he heareth us, we have the petitions that we ask of him. Our prior experiences should not be lost on us. When you have an experience and you feel like the Lord has been with me, the Lord has blessed me, don't let that escape your memory. Make a mental note, my friends, or even a written note so you can re be reminded that God has delivered you in the past and therefore he can deliver you in the present no matter what you're facing. Now, she didn't ask for that this time. She just comes boldly for the second time the king holds out the golden scepter. Now, I'm going to back up just a minute because I made mention of the fact that we have a very clear illustration of what a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We find that Haman has sown to the flesh. Haman has devised gallows. You see how Proverbs 26, 26 and 27 comes into play here? He that diggeth the pit shall fall into it. He that rolls a stone, it shall return upon him. Now the word called, world calls this, what comes around goes around, but the Bible calls it sowing and reaping. We have numerous examples of that in life. We have numerous examples of that in the Word of God. You remember a man by the name of Ahab, that wicked ruler of Israel, that we find recorded over here in 1 Kings chapter 21? Remember how he wanted to have a vineyard that belonged to another man by the name of Naboth? And he had Naboth killed to get that vineyard based upon the guidance of that wicked woman Jezebel. When that took place, he claimed the vineyard, but God sent a prophet to him. And the prophet said unto Ahab, it says, the dog shall lick the, your blood, just like when uh, Naboth was slain, you're going to be slain, and the dogs are going to lick the blo your blood right out of the chariot. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 22, the very next chapter, you're going to find where Ahab indeed is slain, and he's slain in a very out of the ordinary manner. Ahab had talked Jehoshaphat into going out to battle with him, and he had Jehoshaphat to put on his kingly apparel, and he disguised himself. When they went out to battle, the opposition, the opponent said, we want to pick out the king of Israel. And so they saw Jehoshaphat thinking he was the king, and they pursued after him until he cried out that he was not, and God delivered him. So now we got Ahab in disguise, but you're going to find one of the soldiers pulls a bow at a venture. That simply means the soldier did not have anybody specifically in mind when he shot that arrow. You find where Ahab had his harness on, he had his, uh, his armor on, and it was as tightly put together as you could put it together, leaving only a very small spot in a small area of his body that was not protected. This soldier drew his sword at a venture, and that's, excuse me, arrow at a venture, and that arrow found that one little spot 
in his body. It was not protected, and it hit him, and he was seriously injured. He was put into a chariot. He was taken back to Jerusalem where he died, and we find when they washed the chariot, the dogs came and licked his blood just like the Lord said he would. But he also had a message for Jezebel. He is two of the most wicked people who's ever lived upon the face of this earth. I think there's several in this present day that's given them competition. But anyway, there's two, these two most wicked people upon the face of this earth. And the Lord says also, by the way, it's like, by the way, tell Jezebel. Tell Jezebel that the dogs are going to break her bones. And you'll find in the ninth chapter of 2 Kings where she's thrown over a wall and a chariot runs over her. And you find that the king says, go back and get her and bury her. And they went back to find her. You know what they found? They found her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hand. And that's it. That's it. That's all they found. It came to pass just like the Lord said it would. Just like he said it would. Jacob is a man who illustrates his principle very clearly a number of different ways. The word Jacob means uh, trickster. It means supplanter. And you go to the 30th chapter in the book of Genesis, and you're going to find where Jacob and his mother have devised a plan to deceive his father Isaac concerning his older son Esau. Isaac has sent his older son Esau out to get venison because that's his favorite food. and he brings it back, he's going to bless him and give him as the older son the double portion. But Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, have devised this plan. And in this plan, you're going to find where she is going to take a kid of the goat, she's going to make uh, a meal, and apparently she was quite gifted at doing this because it's going to taste like venison. But she also tells Jacob that he's to take the skin of those goats and put it on his arms and around his neck, etc. And they go to his father, Isaac. And Isaac asks him, who art thou? And he says, I'm thy son Esau. When you take a look at this this event right here, you're going to find where Jacob lies to his father several times and deceives his father. His father is finally convinced. It took some convincing, but his father is finally convinced, thinking it's Esau, and gave him the double portion. Jacob then leaves. Esau comes up later, knows nothing about this, and this is when Isaac realizes he's been deceived and given the blessing to Jacob that he had apparently was going to, well, it, uh, he had purposed, rather, to give unto Esau. Later on in Jacob's life, he's going to be lied to and he's going to be deceived. You come to Genesis chapter 37, you're going to find where his son, Joseph, that was, uh, he gave the coat of many colors to. You're going to find where his brothers were all very envious of him. And he winds up being uh, sold down to Egyptian slavery. But they take his coat of many colors. They dip in the blood of what? A kid of the goats. Just like Jacob and his mother killed a kid of the goats in their deception of their father, they're going to take a kid of the goats, they're going to dip his goat into it, and they're going to bring it to, to Jacob. Uh, and they're going to show Jacob this coat here, says, we know not what become of him. Is this his coat? He says, yes, this is his coat. And Jacob believes some wild beast has devoured him. They lie to him. They deceive him. He deceived his father concerning this father's favorite son. Now they deceive him concerning what? His favorite son. 
You're going to find there came a time when Jacob's brother Esau came to him very faint, very hungry, about to perish. You'd have thought his brother in the flesh, Jacob, would have been glad to try to help him out. And he did help him out. He gave him a mess of pottage after he got Esau to sign over his birthright to him. Later on, you're going to find where Jacob is going to have his wages. His wages are going to be changed 10 different times by another schemer, by his uncle, by the name of Laban. When he's over in the camp of Laban, Laban's going to change his wages 10 times. And not only that, but you're going to find that when he serves seven years for Rachel, he doesn't get Rachel, he gets Leah. Leah's the firstborn. Jacob deceived his father and given him the double portion who was not the firstborn. And when Jacob marries Leah, he thinks he's getting Rachel, who's not the firstborn, but he winds up getting the firstborn. Now, there's other details in Jacob's life we can go to and other individuals, but we're going to move on here. But just remember, what you sow is what you reap. You're going to sow in a certain field, you reap in a certain field. You're going to reap what you sow in the field you sow it in. Every word that I speak, every word that you speak is like seed going out. And that seed comes up. That's why we need to be so careful, so cautious to what we say. Every act we do is like seed being sown. That seed will come up. Some people like to sow a lot of seed and hope for a crop failure. But it's not going to happen. God will see to it that the seed will come up. And you see this illustrated again in Haman's life when he built the gallows for Mordecai. But who winds up on the gallows? Haman does. Who dug the pit? Haman did. Who fell into it? Haman did. Who rolled the rock? Haman did. Who did the rock return upon? He ran back on Haman. Now, Esther comes before the king and she's pleading and crying before him, asking him to do something that might help in this situation here. This time, she comes boldly to the throne. She's had success in her previous experience. She's been given courage and strength by her previous experience. And you're going to find where the king is very responsive to it. He says, I've given you the household, that is the estate of Haman. In fact, this chapter opens up by saying that he gave her the house of Haman, which is his estate, and he gave his reign to Mordecai. And then Esther put Mordecai in charge of Haman's estate, which was a vast estate. He was a very, very wealthy man. So what does the king, what can the king do? The king cannot reverse that first decree. That first decree, according to Medes and Persian law, is irreversible. So he signs a second decree, or at least gives Mordecai the uh, authority to do so, gives him his ring. The king was very careless with his ring, by the way. In this case, he gave it to a good man. The first time, he gave it to a wicked man. But Mordecai is a good man with the welfare of the Jewish people at stake. So he writes a decree. And this decree is going to give the Jewish people the right to assemble together, the right to stand together, the right to defend themselves on the 13th day of the 12th month, Adar. That's something they did not have prior to that. They didn't have that prior to that. So here's the second decree that's going out. It's so urgent that it's going to be sent out Men are going to ride on mules. They're going to ride on horses. They're going to ride on camels. They're going to ride on young dromedaries. And I know you want me to tell you what a dromedary is, so here it is. (laughs) 
A dromedary is a young broodmare. They were young, they were fast. They were set up in relay fashion, much like I suppose our Pony Express. They got to get this word out as quick as they can to a vast empire on two continents. They don't have email, they don't have text, they don't have television, they don't have radio, email, all these kind of things. You know, we're living in a, in a day and age where communication is just incredible and unbelievable how you can communicate with people instantly. I mean, you can text somebody. I text my good preacher friend over in the Philippines. He's in the Philippines. I'm here. I send him a text. I get a reply in less than a minute. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty incredible. None of that's available. But here's how they have to spread the word. It's on 127 provinces. It's a lot of area. A lot of Jews scattered in all these 127 provinces. The decree is written. It is urgent. They said they made haste based upon the urgency of the request of the king, Mordecai. And they began to deliver the message. Now, I want you to see something here. The message is about the event. The message is about the decree. It's going to turn out to be good news and glad tidings to all those Jews to know that they have now the right to assemble, the right to stand, the right to defend themselves. But they could not be the aggressor, but they did have a right to the spoil. They had the right to that. That will come into play a little bit later. So they begin to try to get this word out as quick as they can by the means that's available to them. Remember, they're riding mules, they're riding horses, they're riding camels, they're riding young dromedaries, trying to spread this news as far as they can, as quick as they can, so the Jews will know when they read this decree, now we have hope. That first decree was a decree of sorrow, a decree of death and destruction. The second decree is a decree of deliverance. And I hope the Lord will bless me to say more about that toward the end. Remember, the first decree is that of death and destruction. The second decree is that of deliverance. This chapter starts off with Queen Esther weeping with a sorrowful spirit and a sorrowful heart. It ends up with the Jewish people over here rejoicing. The last three verses of chapter 8, you're going to find the word joy, the word feast, the word gladness, words to that effect used eight times. Now just think about it. Let's say you're a Jew living in that day and up to this point you know that on a certain day of the year it's going to be legal for people to come and to slay you. And you're well outnumbered, to say the least. But now here comes one of these writers. It's called a post, a P-O-S-T-S. And he nails that decree on the wall, on the bulletin board of the day, and you go and you read it. And you can't believe your eyes. You can't believe what you just read. You now have hope because now you have another decree that gives you the right and the, the authority to stand together, assemble together, and to defend yourselves. And then it, here's an expression that's very important. It says, and the fear of the people fell upon all the, all the people in the kingdom. The fear of the people fell upon them. And many of those in the kingdom became Jews. Now, that doesn't mean they became a biological Jew, obviously, but they became supporters of the Jews. The promise of God is moving here, and he's putting the fear of the people on what would have been their enemies. Now, God's done that many different times. God is not limited how he has delivered his people throughout history. 
You know, in Elijah's day, God sent fire right out of heaven and fired that offering, right? That bullock was on the altar. He sent fire right out of heaven. God one time sent hailstones right out of heaven to destroy the enemy. One time God delivered his people. When Gideon, the 300 men stood round about the camp in their place with a trumpet in one hand and a vessel of light in, in the other. That's the kind of weapons that God enabled his people to use in times past. Uh, I remember reading uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6 where there were four lepers. They went to the camp of the enemy, the Syrians, because they were lepers. There was a great famine in the land and they had nothing to eat. They found it empty and then were told why it was empty. The Bible says that God caused a great noise to be heard by the Syrians of chariots and horses and great army. And when they heard this great noise, they assumed that the nation of Israel, the king of Israel, had hired other kings of other nations to join with him to come do battle upon them, and there was nobody there. God heard a noise when there was nothing there to make the noise. And the noise is so great that they took that noise to be the noise of chariots and horses of a great army, and there was no army present. You know, they got this thing now you can buy, we happen to have one, a noise machine. People like to turn it on at night when they go to sleep to block out the noise. Now, this seems strange to me. You got a noise machine to drown out the noise to keep you awake. Noise defeating noise. I hadn't quite figured that out yet. There's this noise that, you know, if you hear anything, it keeps you from sleeping. So you turn on this noise machine over here. It makes enough noise to drown that noise out. So now you can sleep under the sound of this great noise that put the other noise out of business. Some things, I'm like David said in 139 Psalms, some things are just too, too high for me. Don't quite get that. Don't quite understand it. But we got one. <laughs> it's the modern day box fans, what I'm trying to tell you. Okay? And you can make it sound like different things. Well, God was in this business a long time ago. And the fear of the Jews fell upon them to where all the people of the land began to support the Jews. So the day comes, and they begin to come to attack the Jews, and the Jews assemble, they stand, they defend themselves. You got now the lieutenants, you got the deputies, you got the sheriffs, you got all those in place of authority because of the fear also of Mordecai have moved them now to over to the other side to support the Jews to help defend them. God is putting his fear in them. Now you find that Again, many times. You go to the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis, and you'll find in the chapter before that where Jacob, he had to take revenge on some people who had defiled his daughter Dinah. But in the end, he was fearful that the nations here, because of that, would all assemble themselves together and come upon him. But you go into chapter 35 and verse 5, and the Bible says God put his terror upon all the nations, and none followed him. In Deuteronomy 2.25, you're going to find where God tells Moses when they're about, to, you know, making plans to go to the land of Canaan. He said, I will begin to put my terror and my dread upon them in your sight. God put fear in the hearts of people. Now, fear falls in about three categories. You, the Bible teaches how we should have a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. That's a reverential respect for God. Then you got the world that tries to put God's people in fear, and that's what I'm seeing a lot in this present day, the things we're facing here. 
And that bothers me when I see God's children walking around in, in, in captivity to fear. That's why you have the expression in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, fear not used nearly 300 times. Must be a lot of things in this world that cause God's people to fear and God's having to tell them continuously over and over and over again, do not fear because I'll go with you. Because I'll go with you. And then you've got the fear of God in terms of God's terror that God puts in the hearts of the enemies to, to benefit God's people. Uh, one more example of this. You go to the second chapter in the book of, uh, of Joshua, and you'll find when the spies go into Jericho, they're speaking with Rahab the harlot. And here's what she said. She says, we heard what your God did in opening up the Red Sea and bringing you across. We heard what he done to those who opposed you in the wilderness. And it says, your terror has fallen upon all of us. And then you come to chapter 5, it says all the kings of that day, when they heard how God dried up Jordan's river and brought them across to the other side, how they, when they heard that, that their hearts all didn't melt. You see, there's these outward uh, weapons that Israel used from time to time, but God's given them an inward weapon right here, one you can't see, but one you can feel. And God put his dread and his terror in the hearts of the enemies of God's people, so they left them alone, did not follow them. Their hearts melted, and Israel then was able to be victorious in their battles. So the fear of the Jews have come upon the people. The fear of Mordecai has come upon the people. And now you find the lieutenants and the sheriffs and the governors and all those in place of authority have now gone to the other side to support and to defend the Jewish people. That's what the second decree did. They slew 800 men in Shushan the palace. They slew 75,000 of the enemy in the other parts of the kingdom. And remember, they're greatly outnumbered. That shows their courage, it shows their power and their strength when God put his fear into the hearts of the enemy. As a result of all that, they experienced this great deliverance. We find where they established a day of rejoicing. And Mordecai says, you are to rejoice on day 13 and 14. Why two days? Well, the first day is to commemorate the day of their deliverance and their victory. The second day is to commemorate their rejoicing about the victory. The Jews today practice this. And on the day of Purim, the Feast of Purim, they assemble on the 13th day and the book of Esther is read. And when Haman's name is mentioned, they stomp their feet and they say his name perish. Haman had 10 sons and that slaughter of 800 of the enemy in the palace of Shushan, 10 sons of Haman were slain. They're all slain at the same time and they, there's a request made by Esther that they all be hung on Haman's gallows. Not only was Haman hung on the gallows, but his ten sons were hung on the gallows. The second day they come and they read the book of Esther and they read also Exodus chapter 17 where Moses and Joshua and Aaron and Hur fought their first battle after being delivered out of, the, out of Egypt. It's against the Amalekites where Haman came from. They read that. And when it comes to reading about the ten names of Haman's sons, 
Now, whoever reads this, reads it in one breath because they're all slain at the same time. So, this is part of their history. And they remember it. And they, even today, they remember it. It's called the Feast of Purim. It's a day of gladness. It's a day of joy. Way back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, God told a man the name of Adam. He said, you need of every tree in the Garden of Eden except one. That's the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God's decree. You know, God's never, changed, never took that back. God has never taken that back. It's irreversible. Romans 3.23 says, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, Wherefore but one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Still in effect, you see. But I read in Romans 6.23, where the Apostle Paul said, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Second decree. God's got another one. His second one overrules the first one. The second one counters the first one. You understand what I'm saying? All right? And so it should be a day of rejoicing for us. Every day we live as we read the scriptures about the testimony in the scriptures of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. How that God sent his Son into this world to deliver us from the law of sin and death. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, when Paul says, There's now therefore no condemnation of those which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. For the life of the Spirit, for the, for the Spirit of the life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You got the law of sin and death, but you got the law of the Spirit of life, which has made you free. John 14, 19, Jesus Christ said, Because I live, ye shall live also. The first decree is one of death. The second decree is one of life. And life is conquering death. When we come to the house of God, we don't celebrate the Feast of Purim, do we? What do we celebrate? We celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the great deliverer who delivered us from so great a death, who doth deliver, Paul said, and whom we trust he will yet deliver us. It should be a time of feasting, a time of joy. It produced that kind of feeling for the Jews. When they had the Feast of Purim on the second day, they go back home to a festive atmosphere, and they have special foods, and they take food and gifts and give it to the poor so all can rejoice together. No wonder they made such great haste to take this proclamation throughout the 127 provinces. Here's a decree that's going to give you hope. Here's a decree that's going to enable you to assemble and to stand and defend yourself. And when they did that, by the way, three times we're told they did not take any of the spoil. That's not what it was about, you see. It was about their freedom, their liberty, their lives. And they went with great haste. They went. Now I'd like to close this morning with an emphasis on that. When the wild Gadarean, who liked to dwell among the tombs, and no man could tame him, and Christ came along and tamed him, he was there without any clothes on. He was a madman, a powerful madman. But one encounter with Jesus Christ, my friends, we find this man sitting and clothed in his right mind. What did the Lord tell him to do? He says, go. 
Go tell your friends. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. When Mary Magdalene and them came to the sepulchre of the Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week and found the empty tomb, but they, they found the empty tomb and they found two angels there. What did the angels tell them to do? Go and tell his disciples that he's arisen from the dead. Go. And the Lord gives that second gospel commission in Matthew chapter 28 where he says, go and, uh, go and, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And lo, I'll go with you all the way even to the end of the world. Go. Go and teach all nations. Go tell his disciples. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. I believe, my friends, this uh, message of God's wonderful grace, how God sent his son into this world to live for us and live the life we couldn't live to cross our T's and dot our I's and satisfy God's divine righteous law of judgment that should come upon us, but by the mercy and grace of God. It's been removed, my friends, because God sent his son in this world here to do for us again what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's worth getting up and going about. In this present day, I find people going everywhere. I find them going this way and that way and going here and there and everywhere, but I want you to understand there's a specific way that we're to go and a place that we are to go with a message of God's grace in our hearts about God's wonderful, miraculous grace and our home in heaven hinges not upon our works but upon His grace and one day we'll be there. Now the Lord has blessed us to be able to go by means of our, our website. <laughs> it's incredible how many countries are hearing uh, our message is here from this pulpit. The response that we've gotten in the last year and a half or more has just been incredible. It's just it's mind-blowing, so to speak. We need to have the urgency in our hearts to spread the word and deliver the message. There's never been a more important message, I believe, in, in, our, in our lives than this. Now, until those people heard the message... They didn't know what that second decree was all about, even though it was signed. It was in effect, you see. But when they heard it, they rejoiced. When they heard it, their hearts uh, were strengthened and their souls were lifted up because now they had hope of being delivered from that first decree and they were totally and completely delivered from it. If I was a Jew, I think I'd be celebrating the Feast of Purim today myself. But being a spiritual Jew, I'm thankful to be able to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ every Lord's Day, one day out of the week. Not once a year, but every Lord's Day, the first day of the week. I'm able to celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And based upon that, I believe with all my heart that when I take my last breath in this world, I immediately will be in the presence of the Son of God in heaven's pure world. If you believe that, then how could you stay at home on Sunday? Well, of course you didn't, you're here. But anybody, at any time, you know, how in the world could we not have the interest and the desire and the love in our hearts to honor him? When you read of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're honoring him. And I tell you what, you won't need a noise machine to go to sleep at night. You just, just, just put on one of my CDs, as Brother Oscar told me years ago, and, and you'll be in good shape.